live from Studio G in Minnetonka, Minnesota. This is Your Greenhouse Home, the podcast. And I am your host, Jesse, lover of all things green. Let's get started. Welcome to Your Greenhouse Home, the podcast. I'm your host, Jesse, and today I'm here with James Wolfen. He's an entomologist and conservation specialist with Twin City Seed Company. Welcome, James. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It was a fun morning here at Tonkadale, and I'm excited to join you on the podcast today. That's awesome. Thank you for taking the time. I know you have almost exhausted your voice with uh, almost three hours of presentations, and you have one more tomorrow. Uh, So far, you've talked about bee lawns and planting for pollinators, and then tomorrow you'll be talking about conservation-friendly lawns. Three hot topics that we're really interested in uh, promoting and teaching people about here at Tonkadale. First, I need to know a little bit about you. Tell me a little bit about your background in education, how you became an entomologist. That is so cool. Yeah, quite frankly, it is somewhere I never thought I would be when I was younger, not even when I first started college, where, uh, and that's even with my brother, he was an entomologist before I even knew what the word meant. Oh, really? So yeah, yeah, he went to a small state school in upstate New York, and, you know, he, like many college students, wanted to get a job on campus like the sciences. And one of the entities that was hiring was, you know, one of their entomology labs. Hold on. Now, what is entomology? Good call. Entomology <laughs> is uh, the study of insect science. Oh, So it can it. take many shapes within that where my specific realm is, you know, pollinator conservation. Uh, and comparatively, my brother, he's on more of like the pest management side. So, you know, he's looking at, I see those mushrooms behind us. There's a pest of mushrooms that he's all about trying to, you know, limit their populations to help mushroom yields. Great. But for me, it's it's all about the pollinators. So he's getting rid of harmful insects and you're promoting beneficial insects. Correct. Yeah. I think I get to do more of the fun work and he has to do kind of the... The dirty work. The, exactly. <laughs> literally the dirty work <laughs> in those mushrooms. So you plants. followed, so to speak, in your brother's footsteps. Uh, how'd you get started in entomology and education? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's honestly a little funny where I was in the same position he was when he was a student. Okay. I was, you know on campus. I wanted a job. I knew I liked the sciences. And he said, apply to an entomology lab. They're always looking. <laughs> They're and I said, always looking for thanks, but no thanks. I'll find something else. And I did try a few other things and it didn't really stick for me. I remember I tried, you know, the PT clinic and it was yeah. whatever. It was fine. But I eventually gave an entomology lab a shot and it was a bee conservation lab, specifically honeybees, but you know, all sorts of different projects. Okay. And the professor there, her name is Dr. Deborah Delaney. She had the most infectious, in a good way, personality that you could ever imagine in a human, you know, still a role model for me to this day where, you know, she, she's the kind of person where if she was passionate about watching paint dry, I'd be watching paint dry (laughs) with the same vigor that I watch my football on Sundays where, you know, her thing was entomology and pollinator conservation, and it kind of just seeped into me like a sponge. That's so amazing. And where did mm-hmm. you go to school? Yeah, University of Delaware out on the East Coast. I'm an yeah. East Coast boy, uh, originally from Queens, New York. Okay. But uh, when time came after undergrad to think about what's the next step, I was interested in graduate school. Um, the The same advisor I just talked about, Dr. Delaney, she highly recommended the University of Minnesota for entomology, specifically working with um, a very well-renowned professor in pollinator conservation, Dr. Marla Spivak. Yeah. And she had, you know, a nice seamless transition. She had this Beelon project all about trying to make spaces for pollinators in the home lawn. And, you know, I come from a very urban area, as you could imagine. Right. So that really resonated with me. I 
truly thought and still think that it was a perfect fit for someone like me. That's amazing. Uh, I love a good story like that. And I just, I remember my days back at University of Wisconsin taking entomology classes. And, uh, you know, while I didn't go down that exact path, it's still very fascinating, interesting to learn about it, you know, by proxy, if you will. So now you're at Twin Cities Seed Company. Tell me a little bit about what you do at Twin Cities Seed Company. I know you've developed some things. You're an inventor. So I wouldn't necessarily call myself the inventor where I always try to make sure the credit goes where it needs to go, yes. where Dr. Marla Spivak and Dr. Eric Watkins, Eric being from the Turfgrass Science Lab at the U, yeah. B-Lawns, you know, they were the genesis of B-Lawns, where literally Marla on a bike ride was looking at some lawns and was thinking to herself, we can do better here, but she didn't know about lawns. She didn't know about that specific type of landscape. So she partnered with Eric and they, you know, had the B-Lawn idea. And actually a grad student who came before me, he did, again, other people doing the dirty work so I could do the fun stuff. Yeah. He figured out what plants can work together to create a B-Lawn. And I described the bee communities that use them where, you know, I got to be the one running around collecting the bees and identifying them. The part that I thought was so much fun. I couldn't, I could not envision a better project. But I have always felt very passionate about education. I love to connect with the community. I did a lot of, you know, like extension work, even just volunteering Mm -hmm. when I was a graduate student. It's something that stuck with me. So I try to, you know, bring this incredibly, what I view accessible project to the community because as far as I'm concerned, I think this should be the new norm for how we manage our lawns. I, I 100% agree. It's so inspiring. Um, so you and your fellow associates at Twin City Seed Company develop seed mixes specifically to invite pollinators into our yards and to promote and protect pollinators for the long term. Correct. And that's another thing that kind of ties back to when I was a student where every year's, gosh, I had one within three weeks of being a student, which is, it was a lot to ingest, but it was, you know, trial by fire does apparently work. Yes. Where we would hold these community field days where residents would come and, you know, entities like Twin City Seed, just anyone who wants to know more would come. Okay. And when the president there, still the president, Paul Cubista, saw these B-Lawn mixes, Uh he, just like, you know, so many of the folks who attend these presentations thought, these are incredible. How can we make these available to the public? And he was the very first person to come to me, him and uh, now my other co-worker, Andy Keating, and a guy named Kurt Slade, also still working at Twin City Seed, my current co-workers. They wanted to work with me and figure out how can we take this idea and make it into a product available to the public? Yeah. So I helped them with the seeding rates. I helped them, you know, educate them so they could be better positioned to, you know, just bring this project to the masses in the form of a seed mix. And, you know, eventually, unfortunately, I had to graduate from being a student. I like to think I'm always a student, but the degree earning process came (laughs) to an end. Um, I worked for a few years at at an entity called Metro Blooms, an incredible nonprofit where I was eventually the director of education. So doing a lot of uh, presentations, just like the ones I did with uh, Tonka Dale earlier. Uh But I knew ever since I was a student that I wanted to make this Beelon idea explode. I had so much passion around what we are doing in the lawns is antiquated. There's no reason we should be following the footsteps of the British monarchy when it comes to what we do in our lawns. We have this incredible opportunity to just make lawns truly green in terms of conservation of both natural resources and pollinators. And I thought that, you know, connecting with Paul and the folks at Twin City Seed was an avenue where I could really make bee lawns from a localized trend to ideally, in my opinion, a nationwide trend. 
So you're like the Hamilton of turf grass. I admittedly haven't seen the play yet, but I still know the story enough to say, perhaps, you know, I I think I'm like, (laughs) you know, a hype man who's done enough of the science where it's not, you know, where it's still genuine. Awesome. I love that story. That's so great. So we can all agree, you know, Belons, native plants, native species, less inputs are a good thing. I think we're all getting to that point. Um, but tell us why it's so important. And there's a specific species of bee, the uh, rusty, the rusty patch bumblebee, that kind of helps narrate the story of why these types of lawns are important. Yeah. So when I think about the value of pollinators, bees, the rusty patch bumblebee included, it for me comes down to two things. One, uh, food production, food security. Bees benefit the pollination of a little more than one-third of the food that we eat, mm-hmm. primarily the healthiest stuff, the stuff we should be yes, eating, like exactly. fruits and vegetables and nuts. And if we want to have that, uh, having bees, you know, there are crops that are fully dependent on pollinators like the almond. There are also crops that just benefit from bee pollination, you know, stronger yields like um, apples are an example of that. Okay. So for food security, bee pollination, you know, an incredible, an incredibly important player in that game, but also in terms of just protecting our natural landscapes. You know, when it's spring, summer, fall, and you're walking through your community garden or you're a woodland area and you see all those beautiful flowering plants, what lots of folks don't realize is 88% of the plants in our landscapes are dependent on pollination and the most frequent pollinators there are insects. So if you want to keep your landscapes beautiful, if you want to have food to eat, pollinators are tremendously important there. And I guess to tie that to the rusty patch bumblebee, I think lots of folks are aware to some extent that pollinators need some help in terms of conservation. And the rusty patch bumblebee, they're almost turning into like the mascot for that um, idea, you know, really helping to generate a rallying cry. Where the rusty patch bumblebee unfortunately is the first species, bee species in the continental U.S. to be placed on the endangered species list. Okay. And that kind of like rang a bell to folks where, you know, this truly is a problem where even though the rusty patch is the first one to be put on that list, there are countless, depending on how much time you have, maybe you could count them. There's (laughs) a lot of species that need that help and will benefit from the same exact practices that we use to benefit uh, the rusty patch bumblebee. Really simple things like putting in installing native flowers when you want to have a garden in place right um and one that i really try to hone in on is this idea of having like staggered bloom times within your garden right having early season bloomers mid-season bloomers late season bloomers where the rusty patch bumblebee it's active spring through fall we should have blooms in our gardens for it spring through fall where the rusty patch bumblebee is just really this of course, a species we want to conserve, but also a mascot for a broader trend. It's kind of, uh, you know, like the polar bear is the mascot for melting icebergs. I've, I've used that exact analogy <laughs> before because in, in the world of, you know, insect conservation, bees, believe it or not, are the fuzzy, charismatic megafauna, so to say. They are our polar bears. Oh, I love that. That's so great. So in your talk today, you talked about a term that I haven't heard before, but I thought was really interesting. Um, reconciliation ecology. What does that mean? Yep. Shout out my my good friend and honestly a mentor to an extent, Ian Lane. Okay. Uh, the student I talked about earlier who uh, worked on the Belon project before me, he introduced me to that term. And it's this idea or even philosophy that 
we're never going to go back to Minnesota being covered in large, expansive prairie, where currently in Minnesota, we have about 2% of the prairie that we had prior to 1900. That is a staggering statistic. It is, where (laughs) I always joke, I had this professor when I was an undergrad, he would say that doom and gloom is never the most fun part of a class, but it's a great way to to, uh, motivate folks to make changes, where sometimes you need the scary statistics in order to get people to do the right thing. Right. But, um, you know, tying back to those prairies, that is where these bees and flowers co-evolved and where, uh, if you're a pollinator, that's where you want to be. You want to be in the prairie. You want to have yourself surrounded by native wildflowers. But the fact of the matter is that with urbanization and just, you know, humans really leaving their footprint on the areas that we live and manage, we're never going to go back to having that extent of prairie coverage. So reconciliation ecology, it's the idea of, you know, trying to meet nature, at the needs of nature and the needs of humans. Right. Where we're never going to go back to having those large expanses of prairie, but we can definitely bring prairie plants into the landscapes we manage. There's no reason that me or you or really anyone that we know that has some space that they manage can't figure out some pockets to include those native prairie plants that our pollinators depend on. Okay. So uh, bringing it back to, you know, your average homeowner, mm-hmm. you know, restoring prairies can be a daunting task. But if we kind of, can we walk it back and talk about it in terms of, you know, uh, something that we can, a bite-sized project that we can complete, you know, over a season or over a couple of seasons, um, First, do we talk about bee lawns and specifically the bee lawn and native bee lawn mixes that are available, seed mixes that are available? Yeah, yeah, where I definitely think the bee lawns are the great jumping off point because they're so accessible, you know, they're bite-sized, kind of like what you were referring to, where mm-hmm. if you want to give some th- someone a project that's manageable and still effective, a bee lawn is a great way to do that, where you still get to keep your grass, you still get to, you know, maintain that function of the turf grass lawn. I love pollinator conservation. I love conservation across the board. But heck, I like to still think I'm in a pretty decent beer league athlete. And I've, you know, I fielded enough fly balls that I know, you know, you can't play baseball in a prairie. You can't play fetch with the dog in the prairie. And lots of folks like to play games in their yard and like to let the dog run around. Where a bee lawn, it's that nice middle ground. It's reconciliation ecology to the T. Yes. Where in addition to that, why it's so accessible and a great jumping off point for uh, residents, homeowners, etc., is because you can install one, you know, an hour in an afternoon where all you have to do is you can overseed it directly into your existing lawn. All you need to do is you cut back your lawn to the lowest setting. Yes. You bag and rake away the clippings where all we're trying to do is expose some soil. You spread the seed mix out. And really the most important point outside of, of course, putting the seed down, you just keep that thing watered for the first two or three weeks. Let it allow it to stay nice and moist. And, uh, and that's really all there is to it where... Plants just need sunlight, water in order to get going. And these bee lawns, once they are actually installed, they're so low input. They have such, you know, they're not like Kentucky bluegrass that needs its water, needs its fertilizer, needs to be mowed once a week. A bee lawn, you could mow it it four times a year and you're good to go. So I love uh, the fact that these are lower input landscapes where you can still enjoy some of the features of turf grass. And you can integrate it into already existing turf grass. Um, for me, I kind of always, before I got to know you and learned more about beelands, I, I was under the perception that you had to totally remove all turf grass and reseed. 
And that just seemed super overwhelming to me. And I, I love the point that you can kind of start here by simply, and I love your steps. One, mow the grass to the lowest setting. Two, rake away clippings to expose as much soil so that germination can take place. Overseed uh, with the Bilan mix. Um, add a compost or a bulking agent to make that spreading a little bit easy, easier. Water, keep it well watered for the cu- first couple weeks of establishment, and then you're almost good to go. Uh, we talked about how bee lawns and native bee lawns uh, require lower inputs. What, how does that, what does that look like? Lower inputs for the homeowner, lower inputs f- overall? Yeah, yeah. So, um, as any good nerd should, I always come prepared with statistics where probably my favorite, one of my favorite research projects was one uh, right out of like the Chicago area where it was a very simple project. They um, took some low input lawns, lawns that use these low input species like the fine fescues and like the tall fescues. And they had some lawns that were high input lawns, you know, species with Kentucky bluegrass that have you know, um, they need more coddling in order to survive. Right. And they managed the lawns under both low input settings, reduced watering, reduced fertilizer, etc. And, you know, the more traditional kind of settings. Right. Watering regularly, normal amounts of fertilizer. And they wanted to see how does this impact your carbon footprint? And they found that if you implement a low input management uh, regime, mm-hmm. which is great if you're using the right grass species, you can cut the carbon footprint associated with maintenance in your lawn to one third of what it normally is. Wow. Where, and that's just from reducing mowing, reducing fertilizer, literally doing less work. That's, I mean, that sounds ideal, almost too good to be true. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk about some of the species of plants that are in the bee lawns. And I think it would be a from there we can segue to talk about uh, lower input and water wise uh, lawns as well. What kind of species of grass and even flowering plants are you going to find in a bee lawn mix? Yeah, yeah. So bee lawns, it is simply put just a combination of what we call low input or low maintenance turf grass and wildflowers. Well, I'll start first with uh, the original bee lawn mix. This is the one that I worked on as an undergraduate student where it's a mixture of four fine fescues. You always want to have some diversity when it comes to the grasses. And then the three wildflowers are Dutch white clover, that little white lawn flower that you've probably seen in all sorts of yards. Uh, Self-heal, this beautiful little purple wildflower, a native flower as well. And um, creeping thyme, a really great plant for sunny yards, especially if you have dry soils and you want something that's going to overwinter really nicely. So a little bit into those three flowers, with Dutch White Clover, the name of the game is flat out the sheer level of diversity of bees that you see on it. Okay. So in the state of Minnesota, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 bee species. We saw more than 50 bee species on just the Dutch White Clover, where you're just going to have to take my word for it. That's an insane level of diversity. Insane level. That is scientifically <laughs> proven. Insane level. That's I've got the degree already. I don't have to worry about the scientific <laughs> jargon. I, I can, love it. you know, give the raw emotion. So, I love it. Yes. Um, and I guess branching away from the Dutch clover, where that one for me, you know, when you see that level of diversity, it's a clear winner. The self heal. If you're looking for one flower in the mix, it's going to be great for the native pollinators. More than 95% of the bees that we saw on the self heal are native. It's also just a gorgeous plant. These beautiful purple blooms. Um, and then moving to the creeping thyme. 
Um, that's kind of like a gardening classic. Gardeners have been using it for quite some time. Oftentimes, like between walking uh, stones, you know, stones they put out where you need right. something really drought tolerant to take. And the reason I think it's great for bees in particular is it blooms really late into the season right. where there's generally not too much blooming in our landscapes. So those bees that are out late in the season and they're hungry, creeping time's a great option. This is, yeah, so I don't know. It's a really attractive mix. Uh, one pound covers about 200 square feet. Yeah, correct, correct. Then uh, we move on to the, I have the bags here. Can you hear them? <laughs> then we move on to the native VLON mix. Now, what's the difference here? Yep, yep. So as the name would imply, there's this huge movement around the country to get native plantings into our landscapes using, you know, primarily or even sometimes exclusively native plants where... Actually, one of my undergrad uh, professors, Dr. Doug Tallamy, I view him as one of the main ringleaders behind this. He brought this, in, he wrote this incredible book, uh, "Bringing Nature Home," where the idea was that we need to be um, we need to be be promoting this idea of bringing conservation into our own home yards. And he said that the best way to do that is by planting native plants. And he is absolutely right. If you want a consistent source of forage for our pollinators, throwing in native wildflowers is going to be your best bet. So that being said, the plants in the original bee lawn mix are incredible. We saw so much uh, bee diversity. But if you want to focus on uh, conserving specifically native pollinators, going with a mix that uses exclusively native flowers is a great way to do that. Right. Okay. So here it... Uh, the same mixture of turf grasses. Mm -hmm. We use the self-heal again. That's a native flower, a fantastic wildflower. Wonderful. But we also mix in yak yarrow and a species called the narrow-leaved blue-eyed grass, where okay. despite the name, it is a flower. It's in the iris family. Mm -hmm. um, and with the yak yarrow, that's what I'm super excited by, where a trend that I'm seeing is landscaping is folks that want to completely forego the turf grass and put in some kind of low-growing you know, coverage plant. Right. I see a lot of folks trying to do that with Dutch clover. Mm -hmm. There's been trials done by, you know, these turf grass scientists, and they found that the yak yarrow is actually a much better option as a turf grass replacement. It does really, really well under those low input settings, reduced fertilizer application, reduced water, etc. So it's such a hardy plant. It's got good flowers for pollinators. That's what I'm really, really excited about. And that iris that I talked about, the right. narrow-leaved blue-eyed grass, yeah. It's just stunning. It's got this deep blue color to it, a yellow kind of center to it. Good for bees, good for songbirds. Just, you know, a stunning plant with conservation but value to boot. That's amazing. Now, uh, with the bee lawns, native or otherwise, um, do these lawns tend to go dormant in the heat of the summer like traditional turf grass? They have much better drought tolerance than your Kentucky bluegrass. <laughs> Kentucky bluegrass and drought tolerance is entirely tied to your root systems. Oh, okay. Kentucky bluegrass, we're looking at root systems three to six inches in depth, meaning that you can't reach down very far to get the water that you need to survive during those periods of heat. Right. When we look at the fine fescues and the flowers included in all of these bee lawn mixes, we're then measuring our root system in feet. So we're drawing up we have much more water available to us when our root systems are reaching deeper into the ground. Huh, that is quite amazing. So speaking of water-wise and lower inputs, we have a series of grass mixes available for different locations in the yard. Tell us a little bit about that. These grass mixes are approved by the Turfgrass Water Conservation Alliance. So tell us a little bit more about these mixes and how they are beneficial in the landscape in replacing traditional turf grass settings. 
Yeah, so I think lots of folks don't realize just how much choice they have in terms of what they put into their lawn. Where I think, you know, the majority of folks, myself included up until a few years ago, they walk into the garden center, they walk into the big box store, they probably just grab whatever's cheapest off the shelf and they throw it down. What they don't realize is that there's literally hundreds, sometimes even thousands of cultivars to choose between, and they all differ in terms of you know, how much they need to be coddled, how much maintenance they require. Where what TWACA does, the Turfgrass Water Conservation Twaka. Alliance, everyone's <laughs> got an acronym now. Yes. Um, what they do is they um, test out the different cultivars and they approve the ones that are the most conservation friendly from a water point of view. Where everything that they approve, um, the stuff that they always post about on Twitter and social media and should be, you know, blessed to everyone who cares about conservation is... Twaka approved turf grasses require 40% less water okay. than just your standard typical turf grass. That's a lot less water. Yeah, yeah. Where they, They'll often post factoids about how many gallons, you know, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water we could be saving each year just by saying, I want to use that grass instead of that grass. Mm -hmm. Looks exactly the same. Sometimes looks even better. You're just, you know, making a more well thought out uh, decision about what species am I going to use? What cultivar am I going to use? And these, you know, these water-wise top Twaka-approved species, uh, cultivars rather, I should say, right. require just so much less water. And any time we're using that water for, quite frankly, anything besides just spraying it over our lawn, where it, it has a massive impact in terms of uh, improving local water quality. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, some may look at the price per pound here at Tonkadale. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a pound of these WaterWise grass mixtures for twelve ninety nine. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I don't know. How do you think in the world of grass seed that compares to like you know your cheapo big box store grass mix? So when you're comparing it to what you get at the big box store, it's honestly not even apples to apples. Where what's really interesting to do, and I'm actually going to grab one yeah. of these here. So if I grab our sunny lawn mix yeah. and you look at the purity, it is, let's see, 98.5% pure grass seed. Right. When you walk into the big box store, they are full of coatings and sometimes even mulches and all sorts of filler that brings the price down, reduces the coverage. But when it's on their shelf, it looks a lot cheaper. Right. So you're getting something that's less expensive, but it doesn't have anywhere near the coverage of what you're carrying here at, at, at um, Tonkadale. Right. And you're just getting a higher quality product here where, you know, even if they were to happen to have a mix without all those fillers, which is near impossible to find at the big box store, mm -hmm. um, they wouldn't be the same high quality of cultivars where everything that we use, we look at all the data behind it in terms of turf grass quality. And when we think about the TWACA certification, right. that means that you don't need to water your lawn nearly as much. So even if you're paying a couple dollars or more per pound, yeah, once you start cutting back on that watering, you're going to make that money back in no time if you just, you know, you're not running your irrigation system nearly as much. You're cutting it down to, you know, instead of running it once a week, once every two weeks. And that's going to have a huge impact for folks. Yeah. And then what about fertilizer inputs? Is is that lesson too using these types of grasses? So Twaka is strictly dedicated to water, but it's another tr uh area where there's a lot of variation from species to species. Okay. So I think lots of folks have it implanted in their head. I want something for my lawn. I'm going to go Kentucky bluegrass. Kentucky bluegrass, 
I'm going to get real sciencey here again, is a little whiny baby in terms of <laughs> its need to be coddled. It, and, you know, I have the statistics. It needs right. three pounds of nitrogen per thousand square feet per year. Yeah. The recommended watering is once to twice per week, depending on how hot it is. It It is really a high maintenance, you know, a little bit of a drama queen, so to say. Yeah. There are species out there like fine fescues and tall fescues. The need is much, much less. So, like, with, the, with both of those fescues, the U of M's Turfgrass Science Research Lab, they do these really simple tests. They... Uh, have a rainout shelter where the test is how do these turf grasses do when they get zero water? Okay. The Kentucky bluegrass goes dormant really quick. The fine fescues and tall fescues will yeah. stay green and healthy for like 60 days, 60 days without water, which is just unheard of when it comes to Kentucky. That's a big chunk of the summer. Yeah, correct. So exactly. You know, if they're not getting water, they're also not getting fertilizer. Yeah, correct. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, the fine fescues have one-sixth the fertilizer requirement of a Kentucky bluegrass. Mm-hmm. The uh, tall fescues have two-thirds the fertilizer requirement of a Kentucky bluegrass. And, you know, I'll, I'll talk about it a lot in the presentation that I do for Tonkadale tomorrow. Yeah, which, yeah. You know, hopefully your podcast listeners can get some info on somehow. Yeah. But um, with these tall fescues, they actually grade out higher in terms of aesthetics in terms of, you know, how can you get the most pristine lawn possible? They're they're considered to be higher quality from aesthetics than a Kentucky bluegrass, and you don't have to water them nearly as frequently, where I think it's just, you know, how can we change the status quo? How can we make folks aware mm-hmm. that there's options out there besides this really high-maintenance Kentucky bluegrass? Yeah. I, I mean, you did a great job convincing me. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. And it makes, it makes a lot of sense, logically. So um, at Tonkadale, this year, for the first time, um, we have these... Twaka, that is a real weird thing to say. <laughs> Turfgrass Water Conservation Alliance approved mixes for dense shade, sun and shade, and sunny landscapes. Uh, here in the western suburbs, you know, a lot of places around town, we have a lot of really shady spaces. And so getting grass to grow there is still important to a lot of people. So we do have those options available. Um, and I'm, I was really excited to learn about them. Thank you for the detailed explanation. Moving on, there's a brand new mix for us this year. Is it new to Twin City Seed? Uh, which mix are we talking about? We're, well, we're talking about the one with the purple label. Ah, uh, yep. The Bee and Butterfly Native Seed Mixture. Now, this is not necessarily... Uh, what is this one? This is not necessarily... <clears throat> this is not necessarily a lawn mix or a grass replacement mix, Correct. Correct. This is for folks who want to establish a native prairie kind of wildflower garden type planting, which is becoming more and more popular Mm -hmm. um, in their yard, where I talk to tons of folks where their point of view is we only need so much space for recreation. We want to maximize our, you know, ecological benefits, so to say, in the rest of our yard. We want to turn it into a prairie or a wildflower garden. And, um, when I was helping to lead the Lawns to Legumes program, one of the things we noticed is there's not too much out there in terms of native, cost-effective wildflowers, you know, blends, where the focus is really on pollinator conservation. Right. So it's one of those areas where I happen to be, you know, very educated on. So I, you know, consulted with some folks uh, that uh, 
that work on this on kind of like the acreage level where one of the entities where I was just reading endlessly about the work they do was the Bee and Butterfly Habitat Fund. Okay. And what they do is they highlight the exact, you know, they try to quantify the pollinator value of different mixes. Right. So I was pretty much just trying to cross-reference what can I use that's known and proven to be really great for pollinators while also keeping, you know, cost in the back of my head where some of these mixes are hundreds of dollars per pound. I, I think that's going to be a comment or a question we receive here at Tonkadale with the this specific mix on the shelf. But if you look at the seed that is in the mix uh, and the square feet, the area that uh, one pound covers, 2,500 square feet, it's a lot of plants. It's incredible where... So I'm not going to call anyone out specifically, but when I go to <laughs> garden centers, most of them now do carry what they market as a wildflower mixture for folks trying to do exactly what I, I said. I was going to mention that a lot of times the wildflower mixes that you can get through seed companies, not that the seed companies are necessarily doing anything wrong. They always feel a little gimmicky to me and they don't cover all that much space. And a lot of times they are full of um, annual plants that aren't going to either reseed or, you know, come back perennially, however <laughs> you would say that word. But this mix, the native bee and butterfly wildflower mix, has tons of your perennial native all-stars, purple coneflower, black-eyed Susan, little blue stem, like, mm. I don't know, maybe my top three favorite native plants that people recognize. They know what these plants are. Yeah, yeah. And Gosh, it brings me back to, you know, I meet with folks at garden centers all the time and they showed me the bag that they have. And, you know, it does have even a couple of the good species in there. Right. But these bags are just chock full of filler where I remember the last one I looked at, the percentage of of the bag that was actually seed was less than 1%. It was about 0.25% wildflower what? seed. Oh, no. And they were still able to advertise, you know, what fo some folks might think is a big number. They would say over 1,500 seeds per bag. Right. And to folks, it, so, it sounds like a lot of seed. It is not. That does not get you anywhere near the coverage you should be getting in, you know, a one-pound bag, where this little one-pounder of seed right here comparatively has about 125,000 seeds in it. It's, a, it's insane. Yeah, yeah. So you're covering so much more land. You're getting more of what you're actually paying for. No one wants to go into a store buy their wildflower seed mix to realize that 99% of it is mulch and seed coating. Mm -hmm. This gets you what you actually want to pay for. So believe it or not, it is a much better bang for your buck. If we were to compare things on a per wildflower seed basis, right. it's night and day. And of course, this includes all natives, all wild, um, all pollinator favorites. And, you know, it, it does still keep cost in mind. And it, it would also include uh, flowers that are going to bloom from early spring through fall. Correct, exactly. The staggered bloom times and what you mentioned before, uh, exclusively perennials. Right. Those species that'll come back year after year. So you don't have to go back to the garden center the next year and say, well, I need another bag. Right. I, I mean, I was impressed by the beautiful varieties that are available in here, even butterfly weed, common milkweed, you know, plants that we talk about when it comes to uh, protecting monarchs and promoting monarch habitats. Uh, the cost, we, got, we are going to go over the cost. The cost is $79.99 for a one pound bag. Okay, that sounds exorbitant for a seed mix. But when you consider that it covers 2,500 square feet, you can't, I mean, you can't fill up your cart with more than four or five plants for that cost. 
Yeah, so I can give some really good insight here. So this is going to be, you know, pre-COVID era where, you know, inflation hadn't hit quite the same. So these prices are going to be a little bit lower than what you'll see now where I did, I I worked in the design and install side of these. Right, right. So I know that we wouldn't get in a truck to do an install unless we were charging $15 per square foot for a $1,500 minimum. Okay. And that was at a nonprofit where we tried to, you know, really, really put an emphasis on being accessible. Accessible, yeah. But at the same time, the cost of plug plants is mm-hmm. high. The cost of all sorts of materials is high. So, you know, the fact that we would do a 100 square footer for $1,500 and you could get 2,500 square feet worth of plants in this bag mm-hmm. for $80, it is, you know, in the world of how can we cover an area with pollinator friendly plants this is as cost effective as it gets it it sounds to me like it is it's going to be the look is going to be different so an installed garden might be more manicured plant spaced this is going to be more wild and prairie like yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. but you know at the end of the gate at the end of the day getting those diverse wildflowers into the garden is what the pollinators need and I don't I don't know of a more cost effective way to do it than than, you know, throwing this down for 80 bucks. And that's what we talked at the talked about at the top of the show, this reconciliation ecology. Exactly. Where, you know, so, of course, here in the Twin Cities, there aren't tons of folks that are measuring their landscapes in acres. But when I was working on lawns legumes, there are people that are trying to cover really large areas because they're realizing why am I watering five acres of turf grass? Right, or mowing it. Exactly. Why am I <laughs> watering and week. mowing five acres of turf grass where they'll, you know, they'll figure out what they want to play on and they want to convert the rest of it. And to go to a garden center and try and buy enough plugs to do that, you're emptying your bank account. <laughs> where, you know, here, your, your, your investment just is incomparable to what it would be if you were trying to do this with plug plants, potted plants, etc. It's really cool. I'm excited to talk to folks about this this uh, spring in the Garden Center. Um, James, you've referenced a program called Lawns to Legumes several times throughout the podcast. Tell me, what is this program? Yeah, so um, I want to say, you know, maybe about a decade ago, pollinator conservation was first starting to become a really big deal, and every state put together a pollinator protection plan. Okay. And for the most part, it is really, really hard to get politicians to agree on anything. We've probably all learned that. There's that thing is called gridlock, I guess. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> but thankfully, one of the things that has, I wouldn't call it unanimous support, but overwhelming support from just about everyone is this idea of planting for pollinators. Mm-hmm. So in, uh, I, I believe it was 2019, the state of Minnesota put $900,000 aside for this program launched legumes where the entire point of it is we want to help folks convert their traditional turf grass lawns to any form of pollinator friendly planting that they're willing to convert to. Okay. And um, I worked for an organization at the time called Blue Thumb that was tasked with you know assisting the state and assisting residents in making this project a reality. And yes yes now now I'm getting it you and then you talked about four different strategies to convert lawns to legumes but really just great spaces for pollinators sometimes I I, I, I know some of the, the the politicians that helped write this and I love the program dearingly I think sometimes politicians get a little caught up in the alliteration where right. perhaps Paul you know 
a more accurate name for it, even if it's not nearly as catchy, would be like lawns to pollinator-friendly wildflowers. But okay. any and all pollinator-friendly native wildflowers are 100% eligible under this program. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that um, Minnesota Bowser, the Minnesota Board of Water and Soil Resources, they wanted to scheme up a few simple planting types that folks could implement into their own yards and gardens, depending on how much time you have, how much energy you have, how much space you want to contribute, okay. things like that. So the four planting types are native plant pocket planting, a.k.a. small garden, yeah. um, pollinator-friendly trees and shrubs, where if you walk by a service berry in the beginning of June, that thing will be covered in pollinators. Mm. So mm. pollinator-friendly trees and shrubs, easy to maintain once they're in and really important, especially early in the season to pollinators. Uh, bee lawns, which we've already yep, talked, we talked about. about that. Love them, but don't need to talk about them further. <laughs> and what, what what they call pollinator meadows are really just, you know, right. large gardens. Think, you know, when we're measuring our plantings in thousands of square feet rather than hundreds. Right. So we, we have the seed mixes here available for the bee lawns and the meadows. Mm-hmm. We also sell trees and shrubs that pollinators love. By the way, service berries are one of my favorite Minnesota native trees. That's my number one. Amelanker. I love saying the word. <laughs> Amelanker. Uh, beautiful four season interest. And then uh, little pocket plantings. And I like uh, this strategy because at the end of the day, uh, what I tell a lot of folks, because there's so much information and so much like do this, do that. This is right. This is not right. Or, you know, you want to do it right. You want to you want to do right by the bees. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, planting plants is what's important. And if you can do that in a pocket-sized planting, um, I, I would encourage folks to just start there and um, just grow grow from there and learn as you go. Uh, so this Lawns to Legumes program is basically, it's a set of resources put together by... Oh, and funding. The state is going funding. to give you money to okay, do this. Okay, so how do you get the money? Yeah, so um, you hop onto the Blue Thumb website, and okay. once you are there, they do not hide it. They are, you know, they are presenting it as clearly as you could ever hope for to apply for this program. Okay. Where, um, like, the support that we saw, it is one of the most satisfying things I've ever experienced. Okay. Where, you know, it was $900,000, about half of that was made directly available to residents, and, you know, we housed the applications, you know, okay. making sure that they come in properly, keeping track of how many. And within the first week of opening for applications, we had enough to give out all of the money that the state had set aside. Some people were like, oh, gosh, this really lowers my chances of getting the funding. And I was like, no, 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 this is great. They'll increase the funding. Bingo. <laughs> Where now the funding is it's, it's millions that they're is allocating it? to this program. Okay. Yeah, so they've re-upped the funding. And so th- this is still available, like grants, if you will, for homeowners to implement these strategies. Oh, yeah. Where the first time we, we did this project that Lawrence Legumes ran, they were able to give out round about 1,000 grants. Now they're giving out 4,000 grants. Oh, wow. You know, per uh, per session. Where yeah. I, I don't entirely remember what the timetable is okay. for how frequently okay. they're giving it out. But there's so much more funding available where it's a direct result of the um, the excitement that was behind this program. 
where so many people applied. That's exactly what the state wants to see. They want to see participation. Right. And that's, you know, and they responded. They said, this is something folks are passionate about. We're going to we're going to we're going to meet you there and we're going to make more funding available. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, we'll link we'll have linky links for all of these amazing resources so you can find Blue Thumb. You can uh, learn all about the different seed mixes that we talked about here today. We'll be talking about these seed mixes all through the 2023 growing season. James, we are so grateful to have you here uh, presenting all the information in three separate sessions. I mean, how generous of you and Twin Cities Seed to come and promote your product and um, educate our customers about the great benefits of planting native plants, providing habitat for pollinators, how to get started with beelons and plant beelons, and then these low, um, low input grass formulations that are, all of this is just going to help us move forward in a better way. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. <laughs> All I want to do is I want to meet people where they're at and just show them some options that are beneficial to pollinators, beneficial to conservation across the board. And I'm hoping that uh, you got some happy shoppers here that realize how <laughs> accessible all of this is. I, you, you've got me convinced and our staff here has learned a ton about it just from you and then through our employee education session. So we're ready to sell. Uh, let's just close with James. What is your favorite native wildflower? So my personal favorite <laughs> is definitely butterfly weed. Okay. One, um, it is a milkweed. It's so important to our monarchs. You see all sorts of diverse bees on it. It can survive. It could, it could survive like a nuclear holocaust. That thing is so resilient. Yeah. And also at the end of the day, I like things that are pretty and I really like the color orange. Not too many out there in terms of orange wildflowers. So all of those things combined, love me some butterfly weed. I love butterfly weed too. It's a great plant. But how do you pick just one? Don't tell the other plant. (laughs) Yeah, you know, hey, sometimes when you pick favorites, you hurt some feelings. (laughs) And that's okay. All right, James, thanks for being on Your Greenhouse Home, the podcast. uh, And we'll see you all next time. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Take care. That's it for this week's episode of Your Greenhouse Home, the podcast. I am your host, Jesse. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you at Tonkadale.